Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, what's up, Twimmel listeners? I've got a super busy few weeks ahead of me as I head back out on the road to close out the 2019 conference season. Next week, I'll be at KubeCon, hanging out with my Kubernetes friends and getting caught up on how the open source Kubernetes project is evolving to support machine learning at scale. Then, the week of December 2nd, I'll be turning my attention to machine learning and AI in the cloud at the AWS reInvent conference. And the following week, the week of the 9th, I'll be hanging out with the AI research community at NeurIPS. Definitely reach out if you'll be at any of these events. I'd really love to meet you. Before we get to today's show, a quick plug for the TwimmelCon AI Platforms video packages that we've currently got available for pre-order. If you're working in an organization where productivity, efficiency, or scale of your machine learning efforts matters, please hit the pause button and check out twimmelcon.com videos, where you can take a look at what we've got on offer. While I could list a ton of reasons why you should get these for yourself or your team, Instead, I thought I'd share a few of my favorite attendee quotes. Very, very relevant for my day-to-day work. Practical information for those trying to scale AI in their organization. If you were to plot out quality versus density, this is up and to the right. Pre-order pricing goes away as soon as we get the videos posted, which is likely within a week. So don't miss this opportunity to get a great deal on this amazing resource and, of course, to support your favorite ML and AI podcast. Once again, visit twimmelcon.com videos for more information on individual and team pricing. All right, on to the show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Terry Sainovsky. Terry is the Francis Crick Chair and Head of the Computational Neurobiology Lab at Salk Institute for Biological Studies, as well as he's on the faculty at UC San Diego. Terry, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Wonderful to be here. I'm really excited about jumping into our conversation. Why don't we start by having you share a little bit about your background? You are one of the founders of the field of computational neuroscience. How did that come to be? Yes, it is a combination of uh, my uh, training first in physics. Uh, My PhD is from Princeton University and then uh, postdoctoral work afterwards at Harvard uh, Department of Neurobiology. And it was at a time when neuroscience was really uh, heavily dominated by empirical studies, and it still is. But I I felt that with my training in physics and and developing models, that this could be uh, another part of of, would enhance neuroscience and help uh, go from the the biological substrate to a more computational perspective on the function of the neural circuits that we were trying to study. And so are you fundamentally trying to apply computation to better understand the neurons and how they operate within a biological context or to use uh, neurological function as we understand it to improve computation? You know, it's really both. It's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard Feynman once said that, how do you know whether you really understood something? It's when you can build it based on the principles 
that you've uncovered and it works and it has the same functionality. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we've been trying to do that with building, uh, you know, very detailed models of neurons, but also, and synapses, but also uh, developing larger scale neural spiking neural models, which uh, help the experimental people uh, interpret their data. But at the same time, because we have computational applications, we can use that to develop, uh, a, a, you know, a much more powerful systems for being able to do things like control robots, vision systems, and all of the recent advances that have been occurring in deep learning have basically come from that direction. Interesting. Interesting. So I've had a few chats about spiking neural nets on the show before. Most recently, the podcast I did with Jeff Gelhar from Qualcomm, and it came up in a very tangential way. So this will be the first time that I've had an opportunity to really, really dig into the topic. My understanding of uh, the general idea of spiking neural nets as it applies to machine learning is that in a lot of ways, you know, deep learning and, and artificial neural nets are uh, inspired by biological systems. Uh, but one key difference is that biological systems exhibit this spiking behavior. And so the field of spiking neural nets is trying to come up with uh, computational analogs for this spiking system that can do, uh, that can act or perform like uh, artificial or that can perform as artificial neural nets uh, and hopefully lead us to more performing, more performant and more efficient artificial neural net systems. Is that kind of a, a good super high level synopsis of the general direction of research in this area? Yes, I, th I think you've you know, set up the, uh, the, the issues, uh, which really are based on efficiency. So, so let's just uh, make a few comparisons. So your brain runs on about 20 Watts of power. Wow. And, mm -hmm. and that should be compared to the amount, enormous amount of power right now that's going into deep learning in the cloud. There was an article in today's paper that it's increasing at a phenomenal rate. I mean, it's not just, it's a lot, but it's, it keeps growing and there's been an effort to create special purpose machine learning chips which of course are more efficient but uh, there's it doesn't even come close to the efficiency uh, that nature has achieved with regard to how the brain uh, is able to accomplish all it does in real time with so little power and the real secret turns out to be to use signaling electrical signaling very sparingly, so it's very sparse, but able to encode information uh, in a way that is highly able to uh, represent the information, but also to compute with spikes. And a sp what's a spike? A spike is an all-or-none uh, event. Uh, it's technically called an action potential, and we know a lot about it. We know the biophysical mechanisms underlying it. It lasts for about a millisecond. It travels down nerves uh, at variable speed, depending on the diameter of the, of the, of the axon, the nerve uh, bundle. And it's relatively slow by computer standards. So, you know, you, you have signaling within chips at, you know, something close to the speed of light. 
but if if you look at a nerve, uh, the, the the typical speeds are on the order of um, uh, meters per second. Mm. So you know that, that's uh, that is the, you know you might say, gee, uh, can't neurons do better? Well, the, in fact, they can. In, in fact, the the one of the fastest nerves that's been studied is the the giant axon of the squid that's used for when the squid has to uh, flee. It's an escape response. And and this nerve is a millimeter in diameter. And in fact, when the anatomists looked at it, they mistook it for a blood vessel. But hmm. uh, later, the neurophysiologists, uh, uh, Hotch- uh, Alan Hutchkin and uh, Huxley, Hugh Huxley, uh, were able to use this as a model system for understanding the mechanisms. And they wrote down a set of equations, Howard, the Hodgkin-Huxley equations, which have served as the foundation for all of signaling, electrical signaling, many other uh, types of channels and uh, pathways that have been built on top of that. So that, that, that really was foundational. But now the question is, how do you compute with those spikes? And, uh, and that's really an interesting uh, problem. Let me jump in with a, a quick question. When we're talking about these, when we're talking about these spikes, are they fundamentally digital in nature? Uh, a spike occurred, or a spike didn't occur, or are there other characteristics that may be important, at least biologically, such as the amplitude of the spike or the duration of the spike? Or I can imagine there might be others, some intensity. How do we have we characterized uh, you know these spikes and what do we think might be part of the information that's transmitted with them? Right. Well, all of the above. Uh, certainly, uh, they're all or none. That that's the characteristic of a spike. However, they come in many different sizes and shapes. In fact, the fast sodium spike I was telling you about on the millisecond time scale uh, has variable width. Also, the, uh, there's a, a calcium spike, which is much broader. And in fact, your heart uses the calcium spike hundreds of milliseconds long uh, in order to uh, maintain a heartbeat. But the f- first approximation, you should think of it, yes, it is a digital signal. Uh, there's either a signal there or not. But it's an, there's, it occurs at an analog time because the spiking is asynchronous. There is no clock, mm-hmm. master clock in the brain. There may be local synchronization that takes place uh, in, in small circuits. But the the idea, though, is that uh, – and this is something that's actually a very powerful way to think about computing, uh, which, which now that, for example, uh, machine learning chips are being developed, there's 100 startup companies out there right now that are all uh, you know vying for this big market that people see um, – and and once you've uh, gone to uh, an asynchronous system, it just it makes designing chips much more easy in the sense that you no longer have to have a uh, a, a signal that trans is transmitted all over the chip that uh, allows you to, to gate the the uh, each transistor on and off. But uh, but the, but there are other things too which are very important. Um, it's not just the spike itself, but what happens to the spike when it reaches the synapse. And there, there's an even more complex dynamical system that controls the release of neurotransmitter. And depending on uh, the, the rate of firing of these spikes and depending on the signaling uh, to the postsynaptic cell, uh, you, you have a very wide range of not just strengths, but uh, temporal uh, modulation of, of that signal. 
So, you Can know, you elaborate on that bit a bit. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we've in, in neural network models, we have learning algorithms. And, and the idea here is that these are slow changes in the weights and that they're uh, permanent. But that is to say, they'll last for, you know, many days. But there are these short term synaptic plasticity mechanisms that occur on less than a second scale. For example, if you have a burst of firing of, of a bunch of spikes at a high rate, then the strength of the synapse facilitates. It can, you know, it could double in size, which means that a burst of spikes is actually has much more impact than an isolated spike or a, a, a same number of spikes that are spaced in time. And and this is a, an example of a mechanism which. Uh, is very important for uh, timing, for you know, and also for regulating the flow of information, uh, which isn't incorporated right now in uh, traditional neural network models that use uh, graded uh, activity rather than uh, spiking activity. So, just to try to capture that, it sounds like one first-order difference between the way the biological systems work and the neural network, artificial neural networks are work is that in the latter, there's no notion of kind of this, even a dual time scale, kind of a short term accumulation effect in changes to inputs versus kind of a long term adjustment of weights. Right. Uh, actually, uh, Jeff Hinton has a paper, a very old paper, probably going back more than 20 years, where he showed that the short-term changes actually could be helpful uh, for uh, networks that have dynamical outputs. By, by the way, um, there's another very important degree of freedom here that we, as we know, is used at, at various places in the brain, and, and I actually think it adds a computational a very powerful computational dimension. So that has to do with the relative timing of spikes. Mm -hmm. So what's known, this is a a mechanism for synaptic plasticity, which depends on spike timing. It's known that if the spike coming into a neuron occurs within a very brief 10 millisecond window before the output neuron spikes, pre, before, post. And if that's repeated at 10 hertz or above, that that will increase the strength of the synapse, long-term potentiation. That means that it will increase in strength and will stay elevated for many hours. However, if you reverse the order of the two spikes so that the the, the output neuron spikes before the synaptic input uh, spikes, and you pair that at 10 hertz with a time window here from 10 to 50 milliseconds, depending on the neuron, then uh, that will decrease the strength of the synapse, and that's a long-term depression. So, so it means that uh, the brain is able to use these relative times to r- regulate the de- how neuron how how the strength of a synapse is is uh, is is set, in either increasing or decreasing it, and and it, that it can do that very very rapidly. And if you think about it, having there must be uh, a, a discriminator sitting in the synapse that can is literally able to tell the order of the pre and post synaptic activity within a few milliseconds, which is you know a, pr- a pretty good um, for biology. That that's a that's a very fast timescale. The conclusion that you just mentioned suggests that what we're talking about with these spikes and whether they're pre and post isn't kind of the result of 
again, kind of some kind of internal accumulator, like some chemical thing where, you know, if the spikes are coming in faster than they're going out, you're, there's a buildup of something. It, it's more about kind of the proximity of input and output timings relative to one another that isn't related to just kind of, you know, thinking about, a, you know, a kind of the input and output of a bucket, like a drain or something like that? Well, those are all good um, analogies, but the, the reality is that the synapse is a very complex biochemical machine that has components in small numbers. Like there's uh, in the postsynaptic side, for example, in the, the, there's a area of very dense structure that shows up in the EM as, as kind of a black surface. The EM? block with proteins, electron microscopy. Yeah. This is a very high-resolution way of looking inside of cells, uh, nanometer scale. And there's like 300 different proteins in that postsynaptic density. And, and they're, they're all there to work, uh, as you say, uh, doing all of the functions that uh, accumulating information, uh, that's an integration step, but also uh, keeping track of what's been happening over a longer time scale. And with, through a, a downstream pathways can increase the size of the synapse uh, through this potentiation mechanism that I was telling you about. So there's, a, you know, if people think of uh, in networks as a, a weight, a single connection strength, as, as one number. But the reality is, that, as, uh, as I said, the synapse is a dynamical system with probably you know, dozens of degrees of freedom at different timescales. And, and those are all there for a variety of reasons, which have to do with being able to uh, have what's called traces. You know, you want to keep trace of something without permanently changing the strength. You want to keep tr track of things that have happened maybe over the last 10 minutes. Uh, and, and, and this actually comes up in reinforcement learning algorithms. This is uh, Andy Bartow and Rich Sutton developed a whole series of reinforcement algorithms that used trace conditioning, uh, these mechanisms for keeping track of information within the, the, uh, the synapse itself so that you can make decisions later. Again, to kind of summarize uh, thus far, you know, there's work happening on the biological side to understand these neurons, and we've identified a whole set of phenomena are characteristic of the way these systems work, including, you know, the, you know, the timing of spikes and the duration of spikes and frequency of spikes. And, and we have some sense of how they translate into uh, behavior within the, the biological system. And uh, then there's this whole other uh, set of work and activity to try to replicate that on the computational side. And I say, and then there's this, not to artificially like separate the two, but, you know, let's maybe talk a little bit about the kind of state of the art and major re research directions on that other side, the, the replication or modeling of the biological systems on the computational side. Right. Well, this is an area that is, um, very uh, active right now. That is to say, uh, there's a number of groups around the world who have recognized that if we can build deep learning networks with spiking units rather than these graded ones, then 
not only would there be a tremendous energy savings, but now you could use these deep networks in edge devices like your watch, uh, you know, or, or sensors uh, directly, you know, uh, at the point where the information is, is coming in. And that would allow a tremendous amount of compression to occur, uh, and is much more efficient in terms of the, just, you know, how to how to get the uh, the bandwidth, uh, reduce the bandwidth that you're going to need to get the information into the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my own group over the last few years has put some effort into being able to do stochastic gradient descent, which is the algorithm that's used for most deep learning networks for for being able to adjust the weights. But to do that with spiking units rather than uh, graded units, and we've had some success. This is uh, Ben Ha, who is a former uh, graduate student uh, of mine, who's uh, now working at IBM. But uh, that that looked very promising in the sense that um, you know we, we were able to generalize the the algorithm so that it would be able to work near thresholds. See, the, the neurons have these very sharp thresholds where if you're below it, nothing happens. And as soon as you go above it, you get a spike, all or none spike. But we showed that if you have a blurry region, you know, a window in between the those, those two states, that you could use it in an analog way in order to be able to compute gradients. So that was very exciting to, to have that. Uh, it was a NeurIPS paper a few years ago. If I can I can pause there uh, with a few questions about that work, is that work or even you know today are we talking about a handful of yeah I guess I'm curious about the complexity of the systems that we're establishing like are, is this like a couple of layers, a couple of neurons are we you know experimenting with deep systems uh, so that's kind of a and then B, I'm assuming you're not, you know, doing this on, you know, new hardware by one of the hundred or so startups that's working in this in this area, but that you're using kind of traditional clocked computing. Are we talking about uh, simulation-based uh, experiments, or are you building custom hardware, or um, you know, what's the kind of hardware at side of this? Right. Well, um, you know, my lab uh, isn't a hardware lab, but we do collaborate with others. Okay. Uh, and and uh, the work I was telling you about was all done with simulations, okay. uh, with with uh, fully recurrent networks having sizes, you know, in the several hundred uh, spiking uh, units that were tr- you know trained to do simple tasks. Simple in the sense that uh, you know it's certainly not at the level of deep learning, but uh, these are benchmark tasks that have been just to show that uh, for one one of the issues and, and very important one with recurrent network is uh, whether you can uh, take an uh, input and store it over some length of time and then use that to make a decision when another input comes in, say a second or two later. Mm-hmm. And that's we demonstrated that. So it's uh, it it has a, a, a lot of the strengths of of these. Uh, uh, recurrent neural networks that are used right now uh, for language translation. Okay. Now that that having been said, uh, we still haven't scaled it up yet. In principle, uh, it should be possible to have layers, multiple layers of these recurrent networks. But but that's not something. Uh, unfortunately, Ben left before he could uh, get to that point. But that but that's not the only approach. We have also uh, recently with a, a graduate student 
taken another attack. And, and the idea here is that, hey, we already have ways of training up these recurrent networks with backpropagation in time. Why not take one of them that already exists and convert it into a spiking network? And that's a, a, a difficult problem. Uh, many people have tried to do this. And it's one typical approach uh, was to say, okay, we'll just replace every uh, graded unit with 100 spiking uh, units, which then will have stochastic variability, but it will get the same message through with some uh, degree of, of uh, variability or noise. And, and yeah, if you have enough units, you can do that. But it's very, very expensive because you're, you're just throwing away a tremendous number of units. So uh, uh, Robert Kim, who's a graduate student in my lab, came up with a very work, a really a, a very, very uh, efficient and elegant solution to the problem. So here's what he did. And this is a paper that uh, will be out very soon in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Hey, before you, you dive into the approach he took, I want to make sure that – we understand the the context uh, so that we understand how important it is. This kind of assumption that for each of a traditional kind of artificial neuron, we would need hundreds of spiking units. Does that come from the idea, you know, roughly that if you've got a system that you know, let's say it's an eight bit, it can handle kind of eight bit you know, weights or inputs or is quantized in some way. Um, and we need to represent that with a system that is essentially, you know, binary. We'll need, you know, many of those binary kind of spiking neurons or spiking units to achieve the same amount of kind of information storage or flow as in the traditional graded neuron. Well, that would be one – I mean, a very direct uh, digital solution would just to have – represent each unit representing a different, uh, uh, you know, uh, unit, you know, for uh, – to, to represent, uh, for example, eight bits, you'd need eight units being on or off. But, uh, no, if you have spiking units that are asynchronous, you need a lot more because you're averaging over spikes. And you might need – for eight bits, you may need uh, – I'd have to calculate it, but something like, you know, maybe – 25 or 50 uh, in order to get uh, you, you reduce the noise by square root of n elaborate on this a little bit more because there's a piece that I think is that is important here and not obvious the averaging over spikes and the you know that kind of driving this fan out in the number of spiking units why does that come about uh well, in fact this is a, it's a, it's called a population code and a lot of it was one of the early uh, ideas in neural modeling, going back to Jack Cowan, which is that you know you have a, we have a lot of neurons, right? We have 100 billion, so you know you might think that you have a lot of units to spare, and so you know you can it's redundancy. You can have the same signal being carried by you know 100 neurons, mm -hmm. and and then if you want to get an accurate estimate for you know the, for an output like for a motor uh, neuron, then you just uh, average over all those spikes. And uh, the the, uh, the the one of the drawbacks of that approach is that uh, if you look at how good the variance is, the, the, say the variability in, in the estimate for the average, it goes down as one over n, and that means that if if you want to reduce it by ten percent, you've got to have a hundred units 
Got it. Okay. That's the the, the problem that we're trying to overcome. Okay. Uh, by the way, I don't believe for a minute that uh, the brain uses units so profligately. It's just not doesn't make any sense to me. It just it's just like throwing away a tremendous amount of machinery. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Robert's uh, solution to the problem I think is so elegant. What he showed was that you don't need to throw in a, a bunch of, uh, of of spiking units. You can get by with one spiking unit per one analog graded unit. But now here's here's the simple solution, which is that you have to decrease the strength of the weight, uh, typically by a factor of ten. And what you find is that if, if you do this right and tune it up a little bit, you can get performance which is as good, in some cases a little better, than the original network. And that is truly, for, for, from my perspective, it's, it's revealing because it means that it is possible for the brain to compute with spikes. It can actually replace the very, you know, the 8-bit kind of, and, and the throughput that you would need if you're just averaging. So in common deep learning neural nets, you've you've mentioned gradient descent, you mentioned backprop. The core problem that we've overcome that allowed us to have the success we've seen with deep learning is this idea of diminishing and exploding gradients uh, in these neural networks. Uh, is do you get the same? problem in when you've got networks of spiking units or is there an analogous kind of definitional problem that we need to figure out right well uh you know there have been ways to overcome uh the diminishing gradient so we 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 have various ways of of uh, being able to get the gradient using skip connections back down to the early layers and also uh by starting out with the right uh set of connections so that it has favorable properties for transmitting information back down. So, the, so kind we, of the we same things kind of work? Uh, it, we haven't done it yet, but th- that will certainly be d- uh, our starting point too. We, we think that, that the same principles should apply. I think what we have already is, is a good indication that uh, there's a great future ahead for uh, spiking networks. And this feeds into the hardware side, which is analog VLSI chips that are now becoming very uh, efficient and uh, there are uh, many companies now that are beginning to explore this. You may know that Intel has a whole group, uh, which are neuromorphic engineering group that is built a chip that is uh, uses spiking uh, units and also has implemented a lot of the other d- details I was telling you about, like short-term plasticity, uh, spike time-dependent plasticity. And so, you know, we have we do have a platform now that we could uh, take our simulations to and 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 demonstrate that uh, we get this great uh, advantage in terms of uh, energy and, and efficiency. And so what, what would you say are the, is there a way to kind of characterize the major research problems or directions that folks are currently working on uh, in the space? Right. I think that the... You know the, the 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 problem that we're facing now is uh, architectural and systems. In other words, mm. we can put together densely connect small densely connected networks, and this is a problem that's faced by deep learning as well as the spiking 
uh, version, which has to do with the fact that the biggest deep learning networks today have a, on the order of a billion weights. You can think of them as parameters, a billion parameters. Mm-hmm. Well, in a cubic millimeter of the cerebral cortex, which is what the deep learning uh, emulates, in a single cubic millimeter, there's a billion synapses. Mm. And what that tells me is that the, the, the cortex has the capacity to uh, create you know, th- many thousands, maybe you know, hundreds of thousands of deep learning networks. And now the question that hasn't yet been solved or confronted even is what, how do you control the flow of information through 100,000 deep learning networks? Right, right. And, and that's a systems level problem. And, and you know, that's it's a problem that nature solved a long time ago. Uh, and it's one that we're just beginning to come to grips with. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the kind of the, you know, even the most basic kind of picture of neurons, you know, that you might might see in a a book or article for lay people, you know, it becomes clear that, or at least it's, it, that system seems a lot less orderly than the things that we've put in place for deep learning, right? You've got these neurons that have many connections, bidirectional. What do we know about the the architecture of these neurons with regard to, I'm not articulating this question well, but I, it's like, it, it feels like those systems are a lot more chaotic than the things that we're doing. And, you know, what kind of directions are, you know, do we think will allow us to build and manage systems with those many, that many degrees of freedom? Does that question right. make any sense? Yes, makes a lot of sense. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at an electron microscopic image of the cortex, it looks like spaghetti. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's axons and dendrites and synapses all kind of mishmashed together. But as we develop tools and techniques that allow us to dissect out the actual circuits, you know, the, the wiring, and also the, the not just local but the long-range connections – what we're discovering is that what looked like it was a mishmash is actually incredibly precisely put together. Mm. And it's all done with molecular uh, systems that are like lock and keys that allow uh, one neuron to find another. And, uh, and that can be over you know, centimeters. Imagine you, know, you have this little uh, axon that's traveling over many centimeters and has to f- – it's like finding – it's you know going from San Diego and uh, having a little string going up to uh, L.A. and finding a particular address up in L.A. I mean that that that's the level of precision with which the brain is put together. This is an incredible device we have, and we will know very soon, uh, sometime uh, next year. Uh, Clay Reed, who's at the Allen Institute for Brain Science, is going to uh, announce. A con- connectomic reconstruction. This is a tour de force because this is something that requires like a petabyte of data to be computationally stitched together. Uh, but he'll be able to have the entire wiring diagram for a cubic millimeter of cortex. And as I said before, this contains about a billion synapses and about a hundred thousand pieces of a hundred thousand neurons. So we're you know we're we're reaching that point now where we will have real 
detailed uh, ideas for what, the, what, what what's the real comple- uh, complexity of these neural circuits. Uh, what what we what what makes it you know the the brain uh, I, th- I think uh, powerful is that it's not uh, it's not the case like they are in deep learning networks where the units are more or less the same, you know, with different parameters but uh, more or less the same input output and so forth. But the uh, there's hundreds, in fact, thousands of different types of neurons, specialized neurons. There's just w- just within inhibitory neurons, there's about 20 different types that have separate functions and are integrated into a circuit with great precision. And and so nature has had much more time to evolve and optimize the circuit for the particular function that it has. And that's different in different parts of the brain. Uh, the cortex has a different circuit from the uh, for example, another visual area called the superior colliculus, which is used in lower vertebrates for their visual system. Hmm. And uh, and there are hundreds of brain areas, each of which has a different uh, type of neuron and type of circuit. So this is a very highly evolved system. Uh, right now, we're at the very beginning. In fact, I think you could compare where we are now, You know, the deep learning networks, where the Wright brothers were back in 1903 when they had their first flight, Right. It was a proof of principle, but it was far, far away from where we end up uh, today. There are a couple of papers that I wanted to make sure that we covered. One of those was, it's called A Simple Framework for Constructing Functional Spiking RNNs. I feel like we talked about some of that stuff, but did, did we talk about the this paper, the key results of this paper? Is this one of the ones that you mentioned? That's a foundational paper for this uh, new method for replacing graded units with spiking units, but we, we went through a, a very lot, you know, millions and millions of simulations in order to uh, uh, pin down the robustness. I mean, how, how many uh, networks, uh, you know, when you put them together will work as advertised, and it turns out to be a very high percentage, but also varying a lot of the parameters. And so this is something you do when you just get something, you know, you have to prove that it actually works. But now what we've done is to a paper that we're just preparing is to apply that to um, much more complex problems and also compare it to recordings from neurons in different parts of the cortex. And what we're finding is something that uh, is happening not just in our lab, but many other places in the world, like Jim DiCarlo at MIT, is that when you train up one of these networks, uh, either deep learning for the visual system or recurrent networks, which is what we're studying here, which uh, is relevant for the prefrontal cortex, what you find is that the properties of the units in these networks are phenomenally similar, statistically similar to the report, the recordings that are made from the brains of monkeys and other species that are solving specific problems, visual re- uh, recognition problems or uh, memory problems. So, uh, so this is really exciting because it means that there's this very close uh, convergence that's occurring between uh, neuroscience on one hand and uh, machine learning and deep learning on the other hand, which I, I think is, is really uh, going to be very, uh, you know, the interaction, the synergies, the, the, the fantastic uh, opportunities that are, are opening up now for the first time uh, in AI that mm-hmm. are going to be uh, sending, you know, uh, information and, and talent back and forth and is you know this is there's been a couple dozen ai and neuroscience meetings that i've i've been to a few of them but there are many others 
uh, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be uh, a career path here for other people who have an interest in, in this uh, convergence that's going on. Uh, and then you've got another couple of collaborations that are focused on this idea of uh, the application of spiking neural networks to sensory motor control and kind of this, what you call a sweet spot uh, in, I guess there's a trade-off between speed and accuracy. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yes. This is a collaboration with John Doyle, who's a control theorist at Caltech. And we're looking at the, the problem of how uh, animals are able to be both fast and accurate, despite the fact that, uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, axons are very uh, limited. Either they're, they're very uh, fast, but very inaccurate because they take up a lot of space and you can only pump so many spikes down them. Or if you have very thin axons, like in the olfactory bulb, where uh, receptors coming in uh, have very, very small caliber, so you have, but you have 100 million of them, and they're very, very, very slow. So they're very accurate, but very, very, very slow. And the visual system itself, uh, there's a time delay of about 100 milliseconds. So you have these built-in limitations in the hardware. But how is it that you can, for example, mountain bike down a mountainside where you're getting jostled, uh, uh, you know, on, on a very fast time scale, and you have to maintain your balance. And at the same time, you have to navigate down a very winding and perhaps uh, dangerous uh, trail mm -hmm. that, um, and, 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 you know, keep pl the plan, you have to plan ahead as well as respond to things that are happening. So, in any case, we've developed a, a theoretical model that can accomplish that. And we have a game. It's, it's a driving game, but it has a lot of the elements of mountain biking in terms of the, uh, the fast time scales, uh, with jitter of the wheel, and also planning ahead the path. And what we've uh, un uncovered in, in developing the model is something that uh, we call the diversity-enabled sweet spot. So what does that mean? So first of all, diversity uh, is something we're all familiar with. You know, you have a very wide range of uh, axon diameters uh, that you see in the in 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 the brain, uh, and the question is, you know, can you, if you have the right combination, can you incorporate them into a control model that takes into account two things: signaling rate uh, and speed, and optimize that? And that's the speed accuracy trade-off. And what we showed is that once you set up that system you can rep reproduce uh, one of the most celebrated speed accuracy trade-offs in, in the, the motor control literature called, this is something that uh, goes back you know, 50 years, called FITS law, F-I-T-T-S, FITS law. And it's, uh, it's a logarithmic law, and it's a very, very uh, a general trade-off between the accuracy and the speed. And we've, we can, we've shown now that mathematically, analytically, we can achieve that with the kind of diversity of hardware that's seen in the brain. Now, this is a general principle. In fact, uh, these logarithmic laws uh, that, like Fitz's law, are found throughout uh, sensory and motor systems. You know, th this is the Fechner's law in vision, for example, sensory systems. And we think that, uh, that not, not just biology, but we think that a lot of uh, engineered control systems can benefit from this principle.
Interesting, interesting. So the so this idea of a speed accuracy trade-off is something that's been well studied in biology and has resulted in a number of laws like Fitts laws that uh, kind of govern the way we see this trade-off in biological systems. And you've been able to uh, to kind of recreate that uh, using diversity as your control parameter, if you will. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's optimizing, the sweet spot is optimizing those two different uh, constraints. The one, one of the constraints has to do with speed and the other one with accuracy, you know, the, the signaling, uh, the, the accuracy. And, and, and by the way, one of the, for me, one of the satisfying parts was that this was a marriage of two important parts in engineering that are separate from each other. One of them is control theory, which is all about time delays. Very rarely do they worry about the signaling uh, pathways uh, because they're using digital logic and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, there's information theory, which uh, is all about uh, information and and how much information you can get through a a, a channel. But they never worry about time delay. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So you have these Mm -hmm. two extremes, and we put the two together, and we find this beautiful uh, sweet spot. Awesome, awesome. Uh, before we go, one of the things that you mentioned uh, as we were chatting before we started the interview was that you are one of the founders of what sounds like a really interesting workshop focused on neuromorphic engineering. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the field and the, the workshop and what you're up to there? Right. Uh, so I was a, a visiting professor at Caltech back in the 80s. Actually, it was was uh, it was a Fairchild Distinguished Scholar, and it was actually in the '90s, early '90s. And I used to go to Carver Mead's lab meetings, and I was fascinated. It, it, he, he, this is an era when he created the first, uh, you know, vision chip or the, for, that re, that was able to replicate some of the things that happened in the retina with asynchronous spiking coming out, and uh, and a cochlear chip for auditory processing. And uh, and this this turned out to be uh, the, the, a kind of a seed. Uh, he published a, a book around that era on analog VLSI and neural systems, which uh, really started a, a whole new branch of, of, of uh, analog VLSI design. And uh, that his students went off to the four corners of the world, but they wanted to continue meeting. So. I helped organize uh, an NSF-sponsored workshop at Telluride. It has been meeting for the last 25 years during the first three weeks of of July, and it's a, it's a real workshop. People go there; they bring equipment, they bring robots, they bring all sorts of uh, uh, devices and oscilloscopes and so forth, and uh, and they work on projects. We have about 50 students and about 50 faculty who give lectures. And uh, it's just a wonderful atmosphere because if, if you've been to Telluride, you're up there in the mountains and you're kind of – it's isolated, but it's, it's a beautiful place outdoors uh, in the summer. Now I know where your mountain biking references are coming from. Yes. Well, that we, we do a lot of uh, – uh, I, I don't do personally a lot of biking, but I do a lot of hiking. And, and But, but the, the, the spirit there is very intense, and the students are basically there. They're not just learning. They're collaborating. They're creating new projects. They take them home with them. And it's created an international community, which I think is very vibrant and very, very exciting right now because it's become clear that Moore's Law has come to an end in terms of how – 
being able to reduce the the line widths any further it's, it's already reaching the point where you know you have leakage and so forth that is is is, is uh, becoming an energy problem but this is uh, having uh, these chips which are incredibly power efficient because you, you're working uh, uh, not at saturation but right at the beginning of the the nonlinear uh, activation and, and you're dealing with you know microwatts rather than watts uh, so, so, you know to flip to, to be able to do a a, a, a decision down at the level of uh, a spike so this is really I think uh, ultimately is, this is going to be the technology that's going to be uh, out there in robots someday because uh, as you know robots are also have to worry about power they can't you know they can't take a supercomputer around with them uh, if, if you want them to perform properly Awesome. Well, we will include a link to that workshop as well as the papers that we've discussed here in our show notes. Terry, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Really, really interesting conversation. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about this episode, visit twimlai.com. Once again, if you missed TwimmelCon, or want to share what you learned with your team, be sure to visit twimmelcon.com videos for more information about our video packages. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.